Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to The Reset with me, Sam Delaney. This is a podcast about mental health, but I hope without all the usual bollocks. Normal chat with normal people about all the perfectly normal stuff that's going on up in our heads. Covering everything from addiction to recovery, anxiety, depression, and basically trying to help you reset your demons one at a time. Each week, I talk to a guest about their own experiences with mental health. This week, I'm joined by ex-undercover cop, author and star of Channel 4's Hunted, Peter Blexley. I've known Peter ever since I interviewed him about his first book, Gangbusters, 20 years ago, and we've stayed in touch ever since. It was back then that he first told me about his life as the UK's top undercover cop in the 80s and 90s, infiltrating the world's most dangerous gangs from the IRA to the Mafia. He spent his life living under all these different false identities, several at a time, masquerading as a dangerous criminal and often putting killers and major league gangsters in jail. It was an exciting time for him, but he paid a heavy price. The pressure eventually overwhelmed him. He suffered a breakdown and he had to quit the force. After that, he developed drug habits that would lead to a second breakdown before he eventually got help, got clean of drugs and got his life very much back on track. Now, he's a successful writer and broadcaster, and he is consistently brilliant company. Peter's smart and funny, but he's also one of the toughest blokes you'll ever meet. As you'll hear in the interview, this bloke has been through some of the maddest and most dangerous adventures you can imagine. But he's never been happier than he is today, away from all that madness, living a simpler, calmer, more fulfilling life. And he says thinking, talking and working on his mental health is absolutely key to that. In this episode, uh, by the way, Peter and I talk briefly about experiences of taking prescription drugs to help with mental health. But please remember, we're not experts. We're not doctors, obviously. So don't take our word for any of that. Always chat to your GP about medication. It's what they're there for. And from my experience, they're extremely helpful. Anyway, 
This is a really enlightening chat, I think. It's also funny, and at times, to be honest, it is mind-blowing, some of the stuff he's been through. I hope you enjoy it. Peter Blexley, thanks for joining me. It's my pleasure, Sam. What a life you have led, mate. Looking back, what do you think your mental health was like when you were a kid growing up? Yeah, pretty robust, albeit there had been pretty dark moments because my dad was an alcoholic and abusive uh, man who, when he left at the age of, I was about 10 or 11, it was good riddance to bad rubbish, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, but it, it didn't impact on me, I would say, in, in, in any way, shape or form. Certainly, I didn't appreciate it if it was. Um, then, of course, I was a product of a single parent family as my mum struggled to put food on the table and clothes on our back. And I became a bit of an errant kid, truanted foolishly, uh, got involved in petty crime. And my life was turned around when I came home to the flat that I shared with my mum one night. And there was an enormous, great local beat bobby in uniform sitting in our lounge. Of course, my first thought was, oh, shit, what am I going to get nicked for? Um, but actually, as it turned out, my wise and wonderful mum, who's still with us, had got this Bobby to come round and have a chat with me, essentially show me the opportunities that existed if I chose to join the police and convince me that was something I should do. And I did. And, um, you know, at the age of 18 and a half, just over, I was posted to Peckham in South East London, an area of chronic social deprivation, racism, and many other horrors. Um, I had four years there, became a detective, went to the Royal Borough of Kensington and Jill, <laughs> of course, um, and uh, in, engaged in some very different policing and investigating different crime up there. 1985, young, I'm 25, I'm fit, I'm fearless, boxing for the police. I walked through the revolving doors at New Scotland Yard as a detective on the Central Drug Squad. And uh, not long after, I embarked on my undercover career, pretending to be a gangster, a villain, a wrong and all of that. Um, and that went swimmingly well, incredibly exciting, fear, you know, it was frightening as well, um, until in the mid-1990s, I was hurriedly parachuted into the Witness Protection Programme, and that is when my mental health began to unravel. But when you were younger, you say you were quite robust, which I, I take to mean you weren't the sort of person to to get the blues or get down or let things drag you under too often, but were there other issues? Were you, were you angry? I was a marshmallow till I went in the cops, to be perfectly honest right. with you. I thought I was a tough guy, um, you know, from the mean streets of Bexley East. I don't think so. Um, <laughs> when I went to Peckham, you know, nearly 19 as a cop, then I realised just what tough people were like. Um, and, and essentially then, as is now, but definitely not during my bouts of mental health breakdowns, I have bulldozed my way through life. Right. Um, I've sadly, you know, trampled on some broken hearts in the process, believe it or not, many years ago, of course. Um, and, 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 and I've always been pretty fearless. But mental health issues are no respecter, as we know, of size or strength. And when, when your mental health fails, it, 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 it can be catastrophic, as mine was. So the reason you succeeded as an undercover cop in the first place was because of that bravery, because of that resilience, presumably. So you must have thought at that stage, was there a stage where you just were almost like, nothing can touch me? Did you almost think you were indestructible at times? Oh, without a doubt, because all those villains that I was spending so much time with were utterly convinced that I was one of them. Mm. You know, so so one day we're driving out to Woodlands to, to use some firearms, you know, some sawn-off shotguns that have been supplied 
applied to me. So we're road testing them with robbers and blackers and that kind of stuff. The next week, I'm pretending to be a contract killer as I'm negotiating to assassinate someone who wants their love rival wiped out. Um, you know, and then the next week, I'm buying millions of pounds worth of drugs from people who are clearly connected to terrorism, so much so that they would accept weapons from me instead of cash as payment. So, yes, I had to be fearless, albeit, of course, there were many terrifying episodes during that. But, yeah, I was just young, fit and fearless. And, and of course, I had a propensity for lying. I was a professional liar. I got paid to go out every day and tell whopping great porky pies. And I did that and I did it reasonably well. I had a towering reputation in the undercover policing world, which spread further afield, uh, so much so that I worked in America and throughout Europe and all of that. So yeah, to a certain extent, to use other people's descriptions of me, I was kind of like the Superman of the undercover policing world. And so when I crashed, it came as an enormous shock to everybody because they had thought, as you'd said, that, that I was indestructible. But of course, I most definitely wasn't. So, so talk me through the turning point then. What, 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 where was it? What moment was it where you thought, hang about, things are falling apart here? Well, mid-1990s, the largest consignment seized on the British mainland of heroin was delivered to me in a hotel room. I spent hours weighing and testing it with the bad guy that had delivered it to me. Um, he was arrested. I was arrested for show. Other people were simultaneously arrested around the country where money was being exchanged, etc. A very big case, international case, multi-agencies involved in it from the FBI in America, the Drug Enforcement Agency in America, the Garda Shikana in Ireland, British Customs, British Police, all that kind of stuff. Big, big case. And when all the bad guys are lined up in the dock facing their charges, of course, they look around and they go, where's that cocky South Londoner with a ponytail? And of course, they, they figured out I was an undercover cop. You didn't have to be Einstein to do that. They then, whilst in jail, worked on the theory that if they killed me, they'd kill the evidence. And the FBI discovered this plot to murder me on a phone tap in a bar in Boston, Massachusetts. Now, that in itself wasn't too much of a problem. But... Because of all the infighting amongst these law enforcement agencies, uh, the Deputy Commissioner of the Met Police asked for a report to be compiled detailing the A to Z of what had gone on. That report was written by a detective who, for some unknown reason to this day, instead of putting my code number in that report, referred to me by my real name. And I've got an unusual surname. Blexley, B-L-E-K-S-L-E-Y. There's only about 14 of them in the UK, and I've fathered most of them. But no, that's a joke. <laughs> only, only, only three of them, I put. Um, so this report, not only did it have my name in it, it was printed off, taken out of a police station, which it shouldn't have been done, in an unmarked car. The driver of that car, the same bloke who wrote the report, then went shopping, and we could all guess what next what happened next can't we yes that car got broken into and the report got stolen with my real name in it so now if you married up the pre-existing plot to kill me as discovered by the fbi with that report with my real name in it and the bad guys get hold of that i'm in deep deep trouble clearly so literally driving home one night i get a phone call don't go home well you're going to tell me what it's all about it was one of the governors at the up no Get here, nine o'clock tomorrow morning, we'll tell you what it's about. Moving to a hotel, one of your false identities, just don't go home. 
anyway, I'm at the yard the following day. And by close of play on that day, it had been decided that I had to enter the witness protection programme, which meant I abandoned my identity, my home, my previous life, and got parachuted into what essentially was a hideout. It wasn't a home. You could never make it a home. Many miles from my previous life. And so began a catastrophic two-year period in my life. And so suddenly everything that you held dear of your ordinary day-to-day life, like your work, your relationships, your family, were, were kind of unreachable. Well, believe it or not, the Metropolitan Police still wanted me to work undercover. So I'm living undercover, I'm working undercover, and occasionally, just occasionally, usually for that hour or so in the car when I drove to work, I could be myself. So by the time, I don't know, half 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, I've already been three different people. And I'm living in a hideout. I'm checking under my car every day to make sure nobody's put a bomb under it. I'm in constant fear of the assassin's bullet in the back of my head. I am conspiracy theorising as to how this report had my name in it and was printed off and got stolen. And, and I've got all of this going on in my head, coupled with the fact, mid-1990s, there's some rampant police corruption going on and people are asking me for advice and help amongst all of this. So it really was, you know, a recipe for disaster. And that disaster manifested itself in me. That's that, now, And I need to be brutally honest here because I did play my part in my own downfall in so much as that I drank too much. And I smoked too much. I'd get back to this hideout, you know, late at night after a long day at work. My head is full of everything that I've just spoken about. And I've reached for the bottle or the can. Mm. And, you know, bearing in mind that I was living a very secret life, this is witness protection. The only bloke that I was really familiar with and that knew me well was the guy who ran the off license around the corner. Because I was in there every second or third day, stopping up again. And, and, and my alcohol intake rocketed. And of course, that was catastrophic because with everything else that's going on in my head, layering gallons of booze on top of it all was not a very smart thing to do. And you're smoking weed as well, right? Well, I was smoking cigarettes. My, my Believe it or not, my drug escapades came after I wow. left the police and were, I would, I would say, most definitely a factor in my second hospitalisation when I had my second breakdown about four or five years after I'd left the cops. How did you, when did you sort of face up to the fact that you had a serious problem and how did you start to deal with it? Well, there was a a landmark moment. I I knew that I wasn't well. I I knew I was struggling, but of course I, I continued to bulldoze my way through life, albeit nowhere near as effectively as I previous had done. And, and and that manifested itself on one occasion when some bad guys sold me three grand's worth of gear as a sample. It was an ounce of cocaine and a kilo of cannabis as a precursor of doing a humongous uh, deal with them. And clearly I wasn't firing on all four cylinders because they sold me mocked up gear. Right. And that would never have happened in the previous 10 years. Never, ever have happened to me. So I kind of knew that I was unravelling. But then the, the landmark moment was when I broke free from the constraints of witness protection. I went back to my old boozer on a Sunday lunchtime. 
because I just felt I needed to connect and try and, you know, treasure and, and, and enjoy the things that I always used to like, my friends, my local pub. There was a bit of gossip going on about me. Somebody came up and whispered in my ear that a bloke sitting on the barstool who I knew, who was a mate, had been gossiping about me in relation to a female. I walked straight up to him with, and didn't say a word and clumped him and knocked him off the barstool, picked up the barstool, raised it above my head, and I was about to bring it down and crush his skull in my dreadful state that I was in. You know, I'm not a man of violence. All my violence was done gloved up and inside the ring or in a work capacity. And somebody shouted my name as I am swinging this barstool towards this man's head. And fortunately, it connected with the real Blex, not the Blex that was so ill. And I stopped 18 inches from his head. I stopped that barstool coming down on top of him. And I then threw it to the side, sat down and, and suddenly realised that if it hadn't been for that, I would in all likelihood have killed him. And I realised that not only am I a danger to myself now, I'm becoming a danger to other people. And within a couple of hours, I was um, in A&E and then referred to a lock-in psychiatric ward at Greenwich District Hospital in South East London. And that's where I stayed for three and a half weeks on that occasion. What sort of treatment did you receive? Uh, wonderful treatment, to be perfectly frank. Um, before that, as I'd unravelled, the police had sent me to some private psychiatrist down at some swanky, twinky hospital um, down in Sussex, which I absolutely detested. I didn't like that psychiatrist. I didn't like that hospital. And I'll tell you for why. On my first night in this private hospital, before I'm admitted in Greenwich, in this private hospital, uh, a nurse comes up to me in the evening and puts into my hand three different types of tablets different colours, different shapes. And even as ill as I was, I still had my lucid moments that I used to cling to and hope that those moments would become minutes and then hours and days and I'd get better. They stuck these tablets in my hand and I asked the three questions. What is it? What's it supposed to do? And what are the side effects? And this nurse refused to tell me any of that. So I refused to take the medication. Now, that, of course, is non-compliance. I'm in a private hospital. You've got to do what you're told. And before they could boot me out the following morning, I legged it anyway. Um, so then a couple of weeks after that, I'm in Greenwich District Hospital. And the stark difference was when they brought a tablet to me to take and I asked those same three questions, I got the answers. And, of course, I felt so much more relaxed. I mean, there were some people in there who was so poorly, who was so dreadfully ill. And, and I was always clinging to the hope and the thought that I was going to get better. And I looked at some of these souls and, and it was deeply, deeply moving because I was thinking, I think some of these people are, are just never going to get better. Um, but the nursing staff were wonderful. The psychiatrist that I had in that hospital, I immediately connected with and it, it, they found medication which started to make me feel better. Didn't make me better, but made me feel better. And then, of course, after some weeks and months of taking that medication, then it did really begin to make me better. Um, 
and uh, until the time that I very, very foolishly thought, I'm fine, I'll stop taking the meds. Mm. And you can write the next chapter, can't you? Because, of course, I started to get unwell again, went back onto the meds, um, and really did kind of regain my mental health after, after some months, many months of being off sick from work. Went back to work, obviously never to work undercover again, never to really be a frontline detective ever again. This is now, of course, the late sort of 1990s. I am hugely stigmatised because I've been in a mental... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Lock-in psychiatric ward. My reputation, both good and as people would see it bad, namely because I'd been ill, preceded me. Um, and it was frankly a ghastly time. And I felt that the pressure was beginning to, to, to bear down on me again. And I drove out of this police station that I'd been posted to one evening. And the whites of my knuckles, as I was gripping the steering wheel, was kind of like blinding me. I managed to steer the car home said to my wife, this is going to make me ill again. It, my time with the police is, is simply over. I've got to leave. I've got to, whatever it is I'm going to do, I've got to do something else. And um, after a long, drawn-out, unhelpful process when the police appeared to be as obstructive as they possibly could, I was medically retired. So you talk about stigma. Is, is it still an issue or do they take mental health more seriously now? No, unfortunately, it's still very much an issue. They have what they call UPPA, which is underperformance something, and the A stands for attendance. So if you are classified by your supervisor, one of your supervisors as underperforming because you may have been off for some months with PTSD, for example, or anxiety and depression or whatever it is that's meant that you've not been at work, you go back and you get put on UPP. Um, and so in essence, your every waking moment is sort of monitored and you can be put on reduced pay um, and, and other kind of punitive measures. So unfortunately, and I speak for the Metropolitan Police here, I know that other police forces are a bit better at it um, than, than, than the Met is, but certainly I'm seeing very regularly people who have had their mental health issues not being dealt with as sympathetically as they should be on their return to work. 
And that's kind of very disappointing on a number of levels. Firstly, of course, on that personal level, because you want that officer to get well again. You want them to be back doing their policing role, serving the public, giving the public value for money. So I think there needs to be greater awareness of mental health, mental health issues, and people returning to work strategies. And secondly, of course, for you and I, and, and your listeners, who are the taxpayers, who, yes, we do fund the police, um, we want value for money out of our cops, don't we? So we want them to be nursed back to full health. We want them to be in appropriate roles for them. We want them to be looked after uh, and not kind of, you know, thrown on the scrap heap in perhaps uh, a way which is a bit similar to how I was all those years ago. So come on, Met Police, please. Was, was speech therapy something that, that, that they provided for you in, in your first stint? Uh, cognitive behavioural therapy right. and, count, and counselling. Because, you see, I regard my mental health as, as work, really. I'm very fortunate. My mental health has been robust for many, many years. But if I ever feel like I'm having a wobble, then I will pick up the phone and go back and see my counsellor. Um, and those uh, experiences that I have with him are very much pieces of work. And if he sends me away from there with something to focus on, it is actually work. And I, and I deal, I, I treat it as such. Same as like I do looking after my mental health per se. In fact, you know, my box of medication is here. I'm looking at it now. It's Risperidone. I take a small maintenance dose of it, one milligram every day. Um, if you read it, people would go, oh, shock horror. It's an antipsychotic. Yeah. Oh, could we employ this man? Well, yes, many people do. You know, I fronted a TV show not so many months ago. I did Hunted for all those seasons. I write books. I do podcasts. My mental health is robust. I am well, and my medication is simply a crutch that I lean on without shame, without stigma, and without embarrassment. That's wonderfully put, mate, because, you know, there are there are blokes out there. I know people who, who, who I've spoken to, and, and they've got, they're going through hell, anguish, for all sorts of different reasons, right? And when the doctor says, try medication, they still feel like, some of them feel like it's a cop-out, some of them feel that they're being weak. Some of them feel like they'll take it, but they don't want anyone to know. And what's very common is like what you've described. And I went through that the first time I took medication years ago, is that you go on it, you feel better. And then you think, oh, fine, I can come off it again. Right. And of course, yeah. we're not here to give advice on that. Only a doctor can give advice on that. But the point I'm making is there are still blokes out there now who will feel that it's almost a dirty secret that they want to hide. What would you say to those people? Yeah, Sam, you, you, you point out that neither of us are medically trained in any way, shape or form, and, and I'll reinforce that. My only experiences of mental health are what I've been through. Two periods in hospital. I don't count the, you know, the Twinkie private hospital one night in there as a, as a period in hospital, but two considerable uh, catastrophic bouts of mental health breakdown, being in hospital, and and I'm not ashamed to talk about it. In fact, I feel like it's my public duty to talk about it whenever I can, because if it helps just one person, then I have done something good today. 
and I was that bullheaded, you know, guy bulldozing his way through life who, as soon as he felt better, went, I'm going to jettison the meds. And it didn't work. I became ill again. Now, the meds I'm on now are not the same medication that I was first put on back in the 1990s. These modern medications are more sophisticated. They're understood far better than they were in the back of the day. And some of them are more modern. Risperidone simply wasn't around back in the 90s when I was on Stelazine. Um, you know, and some of these drugs might have a reputation and some people might balk and go, oh my goodness, and all that kind of stuff. Just ignore it. It's nonsense. It makes me, it keeps me well. It enables me to work, to enjoy my family, to love them and embrace them, to find something positive in every day of the week, to, you know, suffer Queen's Park Rangers relentless defeats after defeats and still be able to deal with it. You know, if it works for you, if it's what's prescribed, if it's works for you, in my experience, I would just urge you to stick with it. And remember, so many of these meds, and I speak only from my own experience, do take a bit of time to, to, to rebalance the chemicals in your brain and to get you to a point where you do feel better. When I first took both the Stelazine and the Risperidone, it took, I would think, at least three weeks before I started to really get the benefit from them. Do you consider yourself to be an addict? Uh, yes. Yes, I think I probably am. You know, I foolishly still smoke cigarettes. Right? I haven't touched an illegal drug in 17 years or so. Um, and I did get a liking for cocaine and smoking a joint after I'd left the police. And when I was, I guess, subconsciously searching for some kind of high that I'd enjoyed for so long when I was working undercover and and all, you know, when I wasn't working undercover, but I was still doing surveillance, tearing around the streets at 90 mile an hour, smashing down doors, slamming people to the ground, putting handcuffs on and all that kind of stuff. It was boys' own stuff and very exciting. And of course, as was my career undercover. So I think I kind of missed all that adrenaline rush. And I foolishly thought I could find it in taking a line of cocaine or three or four. Um, now my views on drugs are very, very liberal. In fact, I'm a, I'm a campaigner for drug law reform. I think we should decriminalize, legalize and regulate the entire drugs industry, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. What I will say is to anybody that is contemplating, um, taking drugs, if you're going to take that bugle and shove it up your router, and suddenly think you are the most interesting person in the room. Try doing this. Set the voice notes on your phone. Put your phone to one side and just record you and your charlied up chums getting on it. And then the following day, listen to all the complete bollocks that you came out with and tell me you're interested. <laughs> that's a brilliant idea i've never heard that before but you'd shame yourself into never touching it again wouldn't you you know yeah and, and quite frankly if it's dope you're smoking and you're sitting around 
in your lounge or whatever, listening to modern jazz that you think you understand. Um, you're on your fourth <laughs> box of Maltesers, right? And you're Zooming your mate about all these things you'll suddenly become an authority on. Send me the voice note file and I'll be the judge on how interesting you are. <laughs> how did you... Um... I think you're absolutely right. But how did you manage to wean yourself away from that, from, from drugs and cut and cut down on drugs? You still drink, but you, you drink in moderation now. Is that right? Yeah. I, I love a drink, right? I come from the drinking yeah. classes. I always have done. And I do yeah. like a drink and that's my, that's my indulgence. Um, uh, yeah. But essentially I have removed the destructive people from my life. That, right. That was how I did it. It was that easy because if the guy that's going to serve you up the gear isn't there anymore, you're not going to get it. So you're not going to take it. Mm. And it's as simple as that. It, it might be harsh because that might have been a friend that you've known for decades and were very, very close to. But at the end of the day, that's not really the sort of friend you need in your life. So mm. cut them out, improve your life. And then sadly look on from a distance and hear about how their life became even more of a car crash because invariably that's what happens. And I wouldn't wish that on anybody, but that was my experience. And people often message me and go, Sam, how, you know, once you remove the drugs and drink from your life, one of the most common things that people send me about my sobriety is, uh, isn't it boring? How, how do you replace it? How do you replace the fun? Which the, the, the more years I've spent sober, the harder I find to answer, because I just sort of think, God, when I reflect on when I was just getting pissed or doing gear all the time, I just think, shit, that was so boring. It was so mindless and repetitive and suffocating. And I feel like I only started to find life interesting once I got sober because it opens your eyes. I mean, you are a man who's led a more exciting life than most of us. Uh, what would you say to people who think that, that, that sober life is boring life? Okay, um, please uh, just let me caveat, of course, that I still do enjoy yeah. uh, a, a, glass, a glass of wine or you know, a beer and all of that. But certainly my drug-free life is best encapsulated by what I said not so many minutes ago. I've not touched a bit of gear for 17 years, and these have been the best 17 years of my life, by far, by a country mile. And okay, I'm 61 now, so, you know, so from my mid-50s through to where I am today, have been the best years of my life, and why? Well, funnily enough, when you're not on gear, people tend to want to employ you, um, <laughs> yeah. which, which is a, a, a note I've found, um, something <laughs> I've found. Um, when you're not on gear, the, the loved ones in your life have much less reason to be unhappy with you. I mean, really unhappy with you. They actually decide that they want to be around you. Um, your selfishness levels drop um, but just dramatically and suddenly you learn to appreciate others instead of being wrapped up, absorbed in your own uh, self. And all those factors contribute to making life much, much happier. Peter, just lastly, I want to talk to you about, about talking, talking to other people. You're, you're extremely open. Um, you know, when it, I've known you for many years and you've always been very open about your life and all this sort of stuff. Um, how important is it in terms of maintenance of your mental health? Yeah, you've got a counsellor, but what about pals, male pals? Do you try to be this open with them? Have you got certain people you turn to if you're feeling like you're having a wobble? 
now more than ever, we need to be here for one another. We can't meet down a pub, for example, or at the football ground and all those other sort of things. So I have been on absolute red alert as to my friend's mental health during all lockdowns. Um, and they have had their struggles. My friends, not me, I've been very fortunate, very, very fortunate. Um, so I'm looking after them and I ring them regularly. You know, some of your mates don't want to do FaceTime. They're all blokey bloke and you don't want to look, sit there looking at each other, especially not when you're my age. Um, um, uh, but, but others do. But it's that phone call. It's that FaceTime. It's that Zoom. And it's that question, which is, how are you? No, you know, and, and you might have to ask it twice. Um, and I know friends that have had their struggles and talking has really, really helped. And I've been able to help them. And there is very few things more satisfying than being able to help a mate just by being there. But when we say, you know, actually, it's not really about the talking. It's about the listening. Because if you, and I've had to train myself because I am rent a gob, as you know, right? Mm. So I've had to train myself to be a listener. But when you listen, you then hear people. And when you hear people, you can then understand them and what they're saying. And then you couch your replies in, in, a, in a more appropriate and perhaps a more helpful way. So reach out, keep in touch and let's all try and look after ourselves. Peter, that's beautifully put. Thank you for being so open as you always are. Uh, we can listen to your podcast, of course, the um, very successful podcast. Give us a plug for that before we go. Well, thank you. Yeah, my life is dedicated to hunting a six foot six liver puddly and 40 um, year old man who's wanted in connection with two separate wor- uh, murders. His name is Kevin Parle, P A R L E. The podcast about my hunt is on BBC Sounds and the other platforms. It's called Manhunt Finding Kevin Parle. It will return. My hunt goes on every day. And my book about my hunt for him is also called Manhunt. Let's shrink the world for Kevin Powell. Let's get him in handcuffs. Nice one. Peter Blexley, thank you. Well, there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. Peter Blexley, what an incredible bloke. What an incredible life he has led. Uh, He exudes a happiness and calmness and so much wisdom. He's a guy I really look up to. Um, and he's a fun bloke he's a happy bloke he's not in the least bit boring he dispels a lot of the myths that people think about sober people or people who have had mental health issues becoming a little bit dull and earnest I could spend all day chatting to a bloke like Peter he's got a never ending supply of absolutely outrageous tales Um, I hope you enjoyed listening to him I hope you're enjoying the reset. There'll be another newsletter out soon. Remember, you can subscribe at sandalaney.substack.com. Tell your friends. Be back soon.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.